This is Stacy Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. The Republican-controlled state assembly has given its second approval to the constitutional amendment changing how bail works, sending it before voters this spring. The Associated Press reports that the measure will require a judge to consider a defendant's potential risk to public safety when setting bail. Bail is currently used as a means to ensure a person appears in court. Opponents have criticized the amendment, saying it creates inequity by allowing wealthy defendants to more easily get out of jail. Additionally, state law currently offers three different definitions of what determines a violent criminal. State law requires the legislature to approve constitutional amendments in two consecutive sessions before voters can approve it on ballots. Both chambers passed the amendment in February of 2022. The measure will go before voters in the statewide April 4th election. Republican State Elections Commissioner Robert Spindell has told the Capitol Times he's not resigning from his position after Democrats called for his resignation. Spindell, who also serves as the chair of the Republican Party of Wisconsin's 4th District, said in an email to Milwaukee Republicans that they should be proud that Black and Hispanic areas had major reductions in voting during the 2022 midterm, according to Urban Milwaukee. Democratic lawmakers held a press conference yesterday calling for Spindell to either resign or be removed by Senate Majority Leader Devin LeMahieu. LeMahieu has yet to comment on whether he would remove Spindell from the commission. Wisconsin's newest head of the Department of Natural Resources, Adam Payne, says his first priority is water quality. Payne appeared on Wisconsin Public Radio to discuss worries over toxic chemicals, specifically PFAS. The Evers appointee said, quote, when it comes to clean water, I don't think that should be partisan, unquote. Payne's duty started on January 3rd, but has yet to be confirmed by the Republican-controlled state Senate. Some of the new secretary's other concerns include improving air quality and handling chronic wasting disease in the state's deer population. UW Health has seen a threefold increase in the number of mental health emergency room visits among children in the past decade. According to an annual report released by the Office of Children's Mental Health, last year, UW Health saw more than 40 children a month for psychiatric care, up from about 15 a month a decade ago. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the rate among children 14 to 17 has been stable since 2018, but children younger than 14 have seen the biggest increase. Similar trends are happening in other states as well. A pediatrics journal has said that and emer- that emergency room visits related to suicide have increased 59% in Illinois from 2016 to 2021. UW Health Behavioral Specialist Shonda Wells cites COVID-19, sexual orientation, and gender identity as factors at play for the increase in anxiety and depression among adolescents. Members of the Dane County Board's Black Caucus have criticized Sheriff Calvin Barrett's claim that county supervisors are delaying action on a proposed $13.5 million jail referendum. The Wisconsin State Journal reports Barrett's statement was, quote, divisive and dishonest. According to members of the Black Caucus, who were joined other county supervisors tonight in voting on whether to put the referendum on the April ballot. 
A natural gas leak at East High School this morning briefly kept students outside the building, reports Channel 3000. The leak was reported shortly before 8 a.m. after demolition work broke a gas line in the school. Construction crews shut off the leak before firefighters arrived, and students were allowed to enter the building once the fire department concluded conditions were safe. And now on to today's top stories. One of the least understood areas of the fight against climate change is carbon dioxide removal. A new report released today from UW-Madison professor Greg Nimitt and a team of 25 other international researchers is the first of its kind in reporting on the state of carbon dioxide removal worldwide. WORT reporter Aaron Ashley has the story. Gregory Nemet is a professor at the La Follette School of Public Affairs with UW-Madison and one of the co-authors of the report on carbon dioxide removal released earlier today. Yeah, well, part of the, the motivation for doing the report is it feels like carbon removal, like removing CO2 that's already in the atmosphere, is at this early stage and similar to where renewables were 25 years ago. The comprehensive 114-page report is the first of its kind. Um, so the challenges are probably similar to what renewables faced 25 years ago was trying to be completely global, and that's what we tried to do, using multiple indicators uh, to assess different types of deployment and scenarios and things like that, uh, and then doing it all you know, in a space that isn't well structured yet, and, and comparing really distinct technologies. The report covers many aspects of carbon dioxide removal in depth, such as various methods that are used, what current research, funding, and nations are involved, public perception of technologies, policymaking, implementation, and various climate change scenarios. While the primary focus of the paper is on carbon dioxide removal, Nemet says that reducing emissions is also critical to fighting climate change, and that carbon dioxide removal can't solve all emissions problems on its own. Part of how Nemet and the other researchers envision the future of carbon dioxide removal is through so-called novel methods. These include, but are not limited to, mechanisms which suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and store it where it cannot act as a greenhouse gas. Some of the ways that carbon dioxide can be stored is in forests, ocean floors, and rocks. Done properly, this can form parts of natural ecosystems. Critically, the report states that these novel technologies are not being used as much as they should in order to meet 2050 carbon dioxide removal goals as set by the Paris Agreement as part of the UN. According to the report, one million times more carbon dioxide needs to be removed annually than what is currently removed in order to meet those goals. We've probably got about 10,000 uh, tons of removal that's happening this year with those technologies, and we're talking about doing billions. Despite those large numbers, Nemet and the other researchers remain hopeful. But one of the optimistic aspects of that is that we can look at things that we've scaled up quickly in the past. And so one comparable that we use is looking at um, wind and solar and how they've scaled up. And those have, wind and solar have scaled up very quickly. We'd have to go a bit faster than that for this direct air capture to become climate relevant. Um, but if we look at something like COVID vaccines or even electric vehicles, those are way faster than we need to go. 
Nem and the other researchers hope to use this study to bring carbon dioxide removal into policymaking decisions. So I think engaging with people that are close to the policymaking process is uh, is really key. And then also, you know, we make a point out of uh, reaching out. You know, I think we had 1,500 people signed up for our event today all over the world, and we're getting lots of inquiries about it. And kind of generating that type of interest takes effort. It takes communication of you know wonky detailed results and getting out of the weeds and saying what actually matters and you know some of the questions that you're asking are ones that uh, we really try to prepare to to um, to explain well every five years countries submit their climate contribution goals to the UN Nemet says that these plans need to be scaled up and need to include wider solutions for carbon dioxide removal the researchers hope that with the interest sparked by the report so far that engaging in policymaking discussions will be easier in the future you can find the report online at stateofcdr.org resources. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Aaron Ashley. Today, we continue our coverage of the 2023 spring primary election by heading to Madison's far west side to see who's heading to the ballot in April for the alder seat in District 9. We kick off our coverage of the District 9 primary race with incumbent Alder Nikki Conklin, who spoke with WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout about why she's running for re-election. The 2023 spring primary election is on February 21st, and this year there will be seven districts with at least three candidates running for an alder seat, all of which will require a primary election. One of those districts is District 9, which represents the far west side of Madison, containing West Town Mall and parts of Old Sauk Road. Alder Nikki Conklin has represented that district since 2021 and is running against two other opponents in the February primary. Alder Conklin joins me now by phone. Uh, thank you so much for talking with me. Hello. Thank you for having me. So just to start things off here, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who are you? Hey, everybody. I'm Nikki Conklin. My pronouns are she, her, hers. Let's see. I have been a deeply rooted progressive community leader with a vision for a healthier and more equitable community for quite some time now. I actually grew up in a small town called Montello, which is about an hour north of here. And the town that I grew up in, Montello, was a very predominantly white town. And so growing up, it was kind of hard for me just being the only black girl in my school, in my neighborhood, in my community. So I really wanted to move to Madison because I was seeking a more diverse place to live now. Moving to Madison, it is definitely a more diverse place to live, but I also learned about the many challenges that the marginalized community has faced here. As a black mother, I have put myself through college. I graduated with my bachelor's degree in human services. I have been a very active member with the Lucia Community Education Center, or LCE, as we like to call it. The LCEC is a place that me and my children both like to call home for us, a second home anyways. I, I, I was a volunteer there. I did my internship there. I became a staff member. I was an AmeriCorps worker, and I even sat on the board of directors there. So I have spent a lot of time with LCEC, and I just really enjoy that place. So because of LCEC, they have given me many opportunities, and one of their opportunities was called the Neighborhood Organizing Institute or NOI, as we like to call it. 
But the NOI is a leadership development program for community organizers, advocates, and grassroots leaders that teaches organizing and leadership skills in a culturally relevant way. If it wasn't for NOI, I wouldn't be here today um, as the elder of the ninth district. So I'm very thankful for all the opportunities that I have and all the opportunities that the community has invested in me to have me be able to do this work here in this community. And why are you running for re-election? Well, for me, my mission has kind of been healthy communities equal safe communities. So I would love to be re-elected to add upon the work that I started on the council two years ago, two very short years ago, may I add. Um, I want to continue to represent my community and be their voice at the table. I will continue to engage and build relationships in my community, around the city, and within city departments. I have been engaged and responsive to my constituents. I keep my constituents informed by maintaining a blog of letting folks know what's going on in and around the district and the city. I attend various meetings and neighborhood association events. And I really believe that I have a holistic view that focuses on addressing the root causes and giving the communities what we need to thrive. So I would like to just keep building upon the work that I have been doing to see how far it can go, you know, um, affordable housing, equity and justice and safety for all is some of my top concerns for the district and for my constituents. And I want to get into some of those top concerns in a moment here, but just to get to know you a little bit more, what do you do in your spare time, Alder Conklin? What spare time? (laughs) Uh, I have very little spare time because um, I actually have three children, one who is a senior, one who is a sophomore, and then I have a a two-and-a-half-year-old toddler. So um, if it's not the big kids keeping me busy, graduation, work, schedules, school schedules, sports schedules, um, I'm definitely chasing behind the toddler that is full of life and energy and keeps me very busy. Well, now moving into some of those top issues, you mentioned a couple of them there, but what are some of the most pressing issues facing Madison that you would want to address with another term? I think some of the most important issues in my district alone is just the rapid growth. And I mean, that's just not in my district, that's in the whole city, obviously. Affordable housing options, the crime and safety of the district and the city alone, those are some things that I would love to continue to work on and develop and work with the city engineers and the city department heads that are well-educated and immersed into the topics that they know so well. So I want to continue to work with them and build upon the work that they're doing and to help, you know, bring the things that we need in District 9 to thrive. Now, Alder Conklin, your district is is kind of interesting. It holds both a lot of commercial businesses, you know, around Mineral Point and uh, Gammon Road there, but it also contains quite a bit of residential areas as well. How how will you balance the needs of your commercial constituents against uh, the residential constituents in your district? Um, I think the way that I would balance that and the way I have been balancing that is to definitely engage and educate the community, both the commercial developers of what this district needs, what this community needs or wants in order to thrive. And I think also listening and understanding from my constituent side what they would like to see and what we need in this 
them to be happy and thriving. Like I said, um, I think if we have a healthy community, which means that we have the things, our basic needs met, housing options, employment options, if we have those things, then we're going to have a safer community because we have everything that we need here. So it's not like we have to go out to another district to work to be able to feed our families. So, yeah, I think that's, that, that's how I would balance is just really engaging and communicating and educating folks of both sides of what we need and how we need to, how we need certain things in order for us to thrive well and, and live merrily here in District 9. And now I want to take a look at a couple key issues facing Madison right now, the first of which being transit. Now, bus rapid transit is uh, set to be taking off pretty soon here. How do you how do you feel about that? Um, I think the BRT is a, a great idea. I do support it. I have been a supporter of it. It is going to be coming through District 9. So um, I'm, I'm fully supportive of this public transportation that I think Madison most desperately needs. And now you've mentioned housing a couple of times now. What sort of key initiatives would you like to see to bring more affordable housing here in Madison? The TOD, you know, the transit overlay development, I think that is going to help bring in more housing. I think also being a part of Housing First initiatives, you know, making sure that people have their basic needs met. So when we secure somebody with housing, it doesn't end there, you know, making sure that there's more resources for them to get employment, education, you know. So, yeah, once we have a Housing First initiative and it's done correctly and we're able to put into it what it's going to put out for us, I think those are great initiatives. And then also I think um, changing some of the zoning to more mixed use and more having more different diversity levels amongst one apartment complex. So let's say we're building a five-story house, or I mean, oh, sorry, five-story complex, and this is not just for senior living, or this is just not for low-income living. This is mixed use. So we're going to have folks who are paying 50% of the uh, market rent, or we're going to have folks paying market rent, or we're going to have folks paying 30%. So I, I feel like having different complexes that have more mixed income is going to be able to bring communities together and it's not just look at oh there's the senior living or, oh there's low income housing like no this is housing for everybody everybody is welcoming everybody has access to this and everybody can enjoy the luxuries of the life that they want and now the final issue I sort of want to take a look at is something that is more addressed at the county level, but certainly has a lot of uh, implications on the city level as well, and that is the F-35s, the jets that are going to be coming to Madison later this spring. Uh, how, how do you feel about the F-35 jets? Unfortunately, the F-35s is something I do not support. Again, I think that there hasn't been enough education around or engagement around how dangerous that this can be. Um, I, I think we need to try to find ways not to neg- negatively impact our communities, and especially people of color, black and brown people that have been discriminated against for hundreds and hundreds of years. So with the F-35 coming and new developments needing to be built to house the folks that are already here and that are planning on coming to Madison within the next 20, 30 years, 
I don't see how that's going to be beneficial for Madison to have them here when we need to invest more into our communities to make them healthier. And I don't see how this necessarily is going to be a healthier community to have the F-35s here. So unfortunately, I do not support the F-35s, and I would love to see ways that the city can prevent negative impacts on communities, especially communities of color here in Madison. Well, Older Conklin, do you have just any final thoughts that you'd like to share with us here? I think I would just like to really just point out that, you know, this is my first time, that there's a lot of learning to do, there's a lot of work to be done, and I look forward to continuing to build upon the work that I've started, and I would love to continue to engage and educate and communicate with my constituents of District 9 in, in ways that we can work together and build together to make not only District 9, but the city of Madison a great place for all to live. I've been talking with Alder Nikki Conklin, current Alder of District 9 here in Madison, who will be running to retain her seat in the primary election. That primary election will take place on February 21st, with the 2023 spring general election taking place on April 4th. Alder Conklin, thank you so much again for talking with me. Thank you. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. The Madison Metropolitan School District faces a lawsuit for failing to fulfill a public records request filed last year by the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, also known as Will. This week on Transparency Talk, WORT contributor Jonah Chester and Tom Kamenick, the president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project and Will's attorney in the case, take a look at the details behind the lawsuit. All right. It is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line, as always, by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how are you holding up this week? New Year's been great so far, Jonah. How about you? New Year, my New Year has also been great so far, Tom. Hey, we got an interesting uh, topic to talk about today, and it's one that's sort of got a local news angle. You all over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project are representing the folks at the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty in a lawsuit, an open records lawsuit against the Madison Metropolitan School District. Now, Tom, tell me a little bit more about the underlying details of this case before we get into the nitty gritty. Yeah, so Will is actually a place I used to work before I formed the Wisconsin Transparency Project, so I know the folks over there real well. And about a year ago, they received some tips from some teachers at Madison Schools. And one of the things they received was a screenshot of a document that was uh, handed out to teachers, and it told them that they should work with African-American students first and most often. And so the, Will made a record request and say, hey, I want to see that whole document. I just saw part of it. I want to see the whole thing, see what's going on. And they asked for some other related records too, thing, uh, similar documents. They made that request last January, January 2022. They also made a request in June where they asked for one single document. And the district has not provided any records in response to 
any of those, either of those two requests. So we filed a lawsuit for delay this week. One year is an absolutely outrageous amount of time to wait for any record request at all. And six months for one document is just as ridiculous. How, how does the media report on what's happening at your local school district if you can't get records from them in a, in a prompt matter? Now, just before we go any further, I should note that in statements to the Wisconsin State Journal, Channel 3000, other media outlets across town, uh, the Madison School District has said it doesn't provide comment on pending litigation. But in further comments to the Wisconsin State Journal, they said that, quote, it was language found in a singular guidance document, the content of which was modified over a year ago, unquote. Uh, But this is not the first time the Madison Metropolitan School District has been sued for delays in responding to records. No, this is the second time in less than a year. Uh, There is another lawsuit ongoing for delay. News outlets have been reporting about this. Uh, NBC 15 reported on it last year. So did the Cap Times. Uh, In that same Wisconsin Journal, Wisconsin State Journal article you mentioned, they pointed out they have eight outstanding requests and some of them are almost a year old. If you folks want to know more, you can read more on the Wisconsin State Journal's website. But um, the State Journal also notes that the Madison Teachers Union has also previously filed suit against MMSD for failing to fulfill their records requests. Yeah, this is one of the worst agencies in the state for producing records in a timely manner. They are a huge school district. They're the second biggest in the state. Their budget is somewhere around $600 million. They have one position one staff person handling record requests, and that position was not even filled back in September when some reporting was done. That position had been open for months. So we are seeking punitive damages in this lawsuit. We're going to ask the judge, you need to hit them where it hurts. They they are not taking their responsibility seriously. They've been sued. They're not getting better. They've been criticized publicly in the media. They're not getting better. We need to try something else. And the thing we think we should try is is levying punitive damages on them. Yeah, and I'm sure we will keep a weathered eye on that case as it progresses through the courts. But we're going to pivot our attention because it's been a jam-packed week for local transparency news. We're turning our attention to the village of Lone Rock. That's about 45 minutes west of Madison. The Valley Sentinel is suing the small village for violating open meetings laws. Tell me more, Tom. Yeah, I was really happy to see this pop up in my newsfeed this week. It was not on my radar at all. But what happened was the village of, of Lone Rock did not provide the, the Valley Sentinel a their 24-hour notice for a handful of meetings. They're supposed to give 24-hour notice to the media. So if the media entity requests to be notified, they have to be sent that. It's very simple. You just get on a list saying, we want notifications of your meetings, and the village is supposed to give them. Well, Lone Rock's claims, their clerk claimed, well, it was just a courtesy to provide notice to the media, but that's wrong. That's the law. And Valley Sentinel politely told them, hey, this is the law. You actually have to do this. And the village didn't listen to them. So they filed a formal complaint with the district attorney to start the process for a meetings complaint. And there's a records issue here too, because after these meetings and after them not getting notices, the Valley Sentinel made a record request and said, hey, we, we want to see you know your agendas and any, any recordings and any communications about these meetings. We want to know what went on that wound up with us missing our notice. And crickets. The village of Lone Rock has not provided those records, not responded, saying when it was going to be. They've just been uncommunicative. And so about two months later, which which it's nice to see them moving that quickly at the Valley Sentinel. So it's been about two months and they filed a lawsuit saying you need to turn over these records now. Now, for those uh, for those longtime listeners of Transparency Talk, they'll probably know the details about, you know, 
what records are publicly available during meetings. There are certain things that aren't, but that's fairly straightforward. I'd like to revisit the notice policy for public meetings. You mentioned it there just a minute ago at the top. Let's rehash it just for everybody's information. What's the policy? Let's say I'm a government official. I want to host a zoning meeting or something along the lines. What are my responsibilities and obligations there? 24 hours before the meeting happens, you need to give notice to the media who have filed a request for such notices, whoever your official newspaper is, if you have one, or the biggest newspaper in your area, if you haven't officially named one, and the public. And the public is the one people are most familiar with, and oftentimes that will be done either by posting it in three physical locations around the, the city, around the village, or now they can post it in one physical location if they also put it up on their website. But that has to happen 24 hours in advance, or in emergencies, they can do at least two hours, but the Valley Sentinel didn't even get two hours notice of these meetings. What would constitute an emergency meeting? Do we have examples of that that you know of off the top of your head? No, there's never been a, a published case uh, explaining what kind of circumstance would justify that. Uh, that. That would have to be litigated out and see what courts think about it. Like uh, like most or seemingly a large portion of Wisconsin's uh, transparency laws, let's leave it to the courts to decide. Uh, all right, we've come to the end of our time for this week. I've been joined on the other end of the line, as always, by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, as always, thanks so much for talking with me this week. I always enjoy it. And remember, if you don't ask, you won't know. After Monday's rainfall and last night's snow, is the ice on Madison Lakes holding up for ice fishing? The short answer, mostly. For the long answer, Nate Wiggyhout and Pat Hansberg hit the lake to break down where you can fish on this week's Fishies Business. Alrighty, I'm on the line now with Pat Hasberg over at the DNS Bait Shop here in Madison. Pat, we had some snow last night. How? Let's start off with the ice. How has the uh, ice been holding up here? Well, you know, we got a bunch of rain there on Martin Luther King uh, Day, and it was it it definitely didn't help the ice, but it really didn't hurt the ice as much as a lot of people might think. Um, we get we had um, you know the areas that had good ice before that. So a lot of the shallow areas around town still have good ice. You might want to just be a little cautious around some of the shoreline areas that could have seen some some damage from the rain. But otherwise, shallow areas are good. Some of the deep areas, there's still folks venturing out there. But, you know, I'd, I'd definitely, uh, if it were up to me, I'd wait until maybe uh, after this weekend, a little cool down here to, to venture out over the deep water. But uh, the ice held up pretty well. I was going to say, looking at sort of the long-term forecast, we got some some cold snaps coming in here, so we should get some good ice coming out of that. But nice to hear that the ice has been holding up a little bit here so let's move on to the uh waters how's the uh let's just start off generally how's the fish been biting uh the, the fishing's been good around town the, the shallow water uh bite for panfish has been good a lot of bluegills coming out a few crappies here and there areas like cherokee marsh and monona bay have been very popular um mud lake upper mud lake uh on the north end of wabisa there has been very popular although after that rain, I'm not sure what access out there is like because you got to walk through a, a, a marsh to get there. So that might be a little sloppy right now. But um, generally, all your sh shallow water areas around town have been producing good bluegills and and uh, crappies and some good uh, pike action, too. We, we, we've got a, a really great uh, population of pike in the chain right now, a lot of 20 to 30 inchers. Uh, and those, those have been coming off uh, 
all 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 the lakes around the area and and some trophy real trophy ones 40 inch plus pike been coming out too in, in in different spots all right now let's get a little bit more specific take a look at lake mendota what's happening there well uh, lake mendota has been uh you know like i said the shallow areas have been good so warner bay has been uh, producing some pike university bay has been producing some pike and some bluegills uh the deep water fishing has been uh it was good last week before the rain uh but you know there was four to five inches out there you know and and i don't know what kind of damage the 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 rain did exactly to that ice so like i'm saying if you're headed out that way i I definitely would avoid running an atv out there right now but um I know some folks are getting out, and, and the, the perch bite over deep water has been really good out on Monona. And you mentioned Monona Bay there, so uh, what about the rest of Lake Monona? What's happening? Well, Lake Monona's also been, um, well, the, the, the panfish bite, I haven't heard a lot about panfish anywhere except Monona Bay um, on Monona, but the walleye bite all around that lake has been still really strong. It's a, a, a great bite in, in 15 to 10 to 15 feet of water. In all the shallow areas, so Old Brick, uh, the city shoreline, uh, down along John Nolan, over to uh, Wickwack Bay, and um, those areas have all been producing uh, some great walleyes. I did want to let everybody know that yesterday I heard about a permanent shack uh, that went through the ice uh, on Monona, but that was in the area off uh, Tony, the Tony Watha boat launch, boat launch over there in Monona. And that area where that shack went through was open water just a week and a half ago. So they they just didn't. I'm, doesn't sound like they knew the ice conditions in that area and drove out over there. And that's that's why that went through. But uh, definitely want to be cautious going through uh, or going out over the deep water, especially these days. We, we, it's been a little bit warmer so far this year. So yeah, make sure you check the ice before you put up a permanent shack. So let's move over to Wingra. What's happening on Lake Wingra? Uh, Winger is full right now of uh, small bluegill and small perch. So if you got a kid, it's a great place to take a kid to keep them busy. Um, not a lot of keeper fish coming out of there, uh, but uh, some decent uh, tip-up action for uh, northern pike and, and largemouth bass and the occasional um, muskie, too. Although muskies aren't in season, they sometimes get caught by accident, you know. But um, it's a good, uh, great population of fish in there for sure. Now let's move over to Wabisa and sort of that area. I know you mentioned uh, Mud Lake there. What else is happening over there? Well, Wabisa on the north end, usually the Lake Farm Park area is a, a, a very popular area to fish for bluegills and pike. I haven't heard about much for bluegills up there, um, but the, the pike action's been pretty good. Down on the south end of the lake in the Bible Camp area, I've been hearing about uh, some walleyes coming out down there and some panfish in, in some of the shallow bays. But otherwise, it's been a little quiet uh, down on Wabisa from what, I, what I've been hearing. All right, final lake in the Madison area, the uh, forever mystery, Lake Kaganza. <laughs> Have you heard anything coming out of Lake Kaganza lately? Well, you know, it remains a mystery. There's, I've been hearing about some nice bluegills coming out of some of the shallow weeds, and I've been hearing about um, a few folks getting some into some decent perch out in the main lake basin. But I, for everybody that tells me they're doing great, I hear about uh, another person that's getting skunked out there. So it can be uh, pretty hit or miss, but... Uh, you know, it's, it's definitely a great lake, and it's got a great population of fish. They just seem to be a little hard to track down right now. 
one day we're going to talk about Lake Caganza and talk about how many fish everyone is catching out of there, but <laughs> it, it's just just not today. Well, just yeah. sort of sort of wrapping things up here, I have a little bit of a fishing report for you. I did get out do a little trout fishing uh, last weekend. Caught a couple brown trout here or there. Nothing of any uh, huge size or anything, but it was fun to catch them. So, uh, what have you been hearing? Have you heard anything of the uh, trout bite lately? Yeah, and there was a bunch of folks that got out for the opener, and um, you know, I, I I gotta think that this rain that we got, you know, raised stream levels and maybe dirty dirty them up a bit. But um, you know, like you like you were saying, very similarly, I've heard about some nice fish coming out, uh, usually in in deeper, slower pools, stuff like that. Um, those areas are the areas that typically hold fish this time of year. But um, you know, the, the things are you know steady action out there for folks so it's, it's a great time of year to be out uh, exploring trout streams this time of year for sure well let's wrap things up here for today pat do you have just any final fishing advice for the uh, people out there oh i did want to mention that this weekend the dnr is hosting their um, free fishing weekend so if, if if you don't have a fishing license folks can get out and fish and they don't need a license so that, and that's that um, applies to trout fishing or ice fishing or any kind of fishing you want to do so you know, if that's been your barrier is, is having a license, this this is your weekend to get out there and try it. You don't need to have a license. So get give out, that a shot. Yeah, give it a shot. Maybe something that you haven't done before. If you haven't done ice fishing, maybe maybe try some ice fishing or trout fishing in the winter. It's it's, it's a different sort of, it's, it's a fun thing to do. I, I highly appreciate it. So, yeah, well, Pat, thank you again for talking with me this week. You can hear an updated fishing report anytime that you want by calling one easy number. That's 608-BIG-FISH. Uh, and Pat, that'll wrap it up. Have a have a good week and good luck out there. Thanks, Nate. You too. Is your New Year's resolution to spend less time on your phone? I don't know. I got to get off of Instagram. It's it's terrible. What if there was something that you could keep in your pocket and be creative along the way? Enter Hello Loom, created by Marianne Fairbanks to fit in your pocket and allow you to loom on the go. Fairbanks Fairbanks is an assistant professor of design studies at UW-Madison and talks with contributor Jennifer Fields in this archival edition of Radio Chipstone. When I started this project called Weaving Lab um, back in 2016, the intention was that I could invite people in to have that experience. And then I quickly came to realize that many people didn't have time or maybe, you know, just couldn't come, you know, and they, they could stop in and they seemed very curious and then they were on their way. Well, that was, I guess, my initial realization in like, well, that's not the end of the experience. I want them to be able to have something to take with them so they can continue to explore these ideas on their own. Um, and that's where the portability really came into my desire to, to have people experience weaving participate in weaving, play with it, um, use it as a, you know, not only as a form of creativity, but a form of expression. And so then that's when I first thought about uh, using a laser cutter to, you know, make maybe a modern version of that pot holder loom that you're talking about. I think the main difference between um, maybe that and, and this loom that I've worked towards making is um, building in the efficiencies of, of the design, you know, getting the Hello Loom, which was originally called the Pocket Loom. Um, and I, I think even before that, I called it the iPhone Loom because it was the shape of my iPhone at the time. And I wanted it to 
um, be pocketable, just like the iPhone. You know, everyone has that in their hand all the time, and I wanted people to sort of replace that technology, the, the screen technology, with this um, loom as a as a way as a mode of um, making. Like I said, as a mode of expression. So I was really leaning towards that iPhone and saying, like, hey, look, let's get off these screens and let's let's experience materials and 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 leave left to right instead you know, scrolling all day. Uh, so I, I worked thinking about the laser cutter in particular because I thought, well, here's a way I can, you know, mass produce these kind of cheaply and maybe give them away. And so initial tests were done with um, sort of like a chipboard or, you know, other really cheap materials because the goal really was to make as many as I could to be able to hand people and say, hey, here, here, take some yarn, take some, take this tool and, and go home and, and play around. One of the things, Marianne, that I that I think about in, in my brief exposure to weaving, and one of the things I think about is that it's it's like moving meditation. Mm. Does your weaving t- is it transformative for you? Does it take your brain out of these big ideas and get to your personal flow? Mm. And if so, where is that space? What does weaving do for you? Is it mm. a place of refuge, or is it something that, as you're doing it, you're thinking about these big things? I think for me, it does provide a lot of meditational qualities. Like I really, you know, some people really don't like setting up the loom because it's such a long and sort of tedious project. Um, But I actually like all the parts in the, you know, the winding. If you really slow down to think about it and your, your hands are touching that thread over and over again, each, you know, so hundreds of yards of thread have been individually touched by your hands. And I like, sort of how it makes you slow down. And so to your point, I think it's, for me, I find that meditation and that these repetitive processes that are really involved in weaving. Um, and so I think for me, part of the meditational process is in the setup, is in like getting ready, is in the preparing of the yarns to be woven. And then the weaving actually, I feel like happens more quickly for me. And I don't maybe find the flow as much in that particular moment as I do in the, in the setup. Um, but I will say that I've extended that question around weaving being a meditational act to one of my projects in the weaving lab, which is asking people, you know, is weaving meditational? And I don't, you know, I don't hope to provide an answer for that. Instead, I hope to provide a platform for exploring that. Cause I think for each person, of course, it's going to be different. And so there's no one answer. I think that having a craft or a, a creative process be a place of um, reflection and 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 solace for your mind is actually obviously right now especially very great and so I encourage people to sort of think about that and and find those places in their own practice but for me I love repetitive processes and I think that's one of the reasons that I've came to textiles and fibers as a discipline in the first place is like there's something really rewarding for me in, in, in repeating an action. And so that's maybe where my mind and my body come together in, in, medita- in a more meditational state. It's, it's just such a tremendous gift to give someone. Like to, to give someone not only a skill, something that they can pass on that could give them a better understanding of how fibers and how things work around them, but to give someone that, that moment of peace. You know, maybe they find their peace in putting it together. Maybe they find their peace in selecting the yarns. What you're, what you're providing folks is something that 
you're, you're helping people literally, and it sounds so Barbara Walters, but you're helping them weave memories. You're helping them create this fabric out of like memories and new experiences, and they'll be able to see where they messed it up, and they'll be able to see where it works. So it's really this thing that it's, you know, I think when you said pocket weaver, I immediately thought like pocket fisherman, pocket this, pocket that, those old Ronco commercials. But it's really on a much deeper level than that. Like you're giving someone a skill and experience and then evidence of that skill and experience and the and the ability or the perhaps um, what would you call that the the I guess the ability or the likelihood that it will become a nostalgic thing for them that it will become something an object that keeps them connected to that moment in their life where they found that peace in their in their pocket mm. absolutely I I love that and you know, I, I guess if that is an outcome of this, I would be so thrilled. And I think one of the things, I guess one of the things I will say, you know, it's interesting to come back to that, that um, potholder loom versus the hello loom is that, you know, often when people approach it, they say, well, what is it going to be? You know, what is the little, little weaving that I make going to be? You know, it, oh, it looks like the size of a rug for a dollhouse, or could I make it into a bracelet? And I think for me, as someone who's had a ton of experience with weaving, I'm, you know, if you want to make it into that, I am fine. That's great. That's amazing. But one of the things that I, I was really adamant about was, um, you know, once we realized when the design was happening that we could make a little stand so that when you're done, you could leave it on the frame and just and look at it and, and really appreciate the work that you've put in and the, and the beauty of, of the love and cloth. And so for me, I think focusing again on like, not what is it going to be as a utilitarian thing, but like what is what a beautiful object that I've just made. What a beautiful um, series of intersections. Like let's let's just stand back and appreciate it. So I think that's really a critical, you know, thing to mention is that I I really do want to focus on the process in a way and and the outcome in that it's a reflection of the time that you've spent with that process, if that makes sense. So you know, not moving directly into here it is a pot holder. Ta-da, now it's going to be a pot holder in my kitchen, which again is awesome. I love the utilitarian aspects of cloth, but I also think we can slow down and think about all of those other things. You know, like you said, is is this a memento of this time that I've spent? Is this, um, what does it mean for me to, to make this? And, and could I embed messages into this that are abstract, of course, right? It's not direct, uh, but it's, I think it's a form of communication and I like the idea that you sit and look at this textile and be proud of it and have it um, be embedded with all the things that you were thinking about during that time that you wove it. And that's a wrap for WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Peter Voller. Your script editor was Russ Mackey. Your reporter to this evening was Aaron Ashley. Special thanks to feature contributors Jonah Chester and Tom Kamenick, Pat Hansberg, and Jennifer Fields. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nick Wiggenhout produced this newscast, and Ms. Sally Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slate. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Shout out to everybody who's listening live on the app right now that you can download for your phone. And you can also subscribe to the local news as a podcast. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Thanks for listening and good night.
Say it with me. W-O-R-T, Madison.